Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 72 movies, one cage. Today's film is Vampire's Kiss from 1988. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Manzi. I'm your other host, Joey Lewandowski, and with us for the third time we have a guest. We have Todd Ben Mullicum, personal real-life friend of our first guest, Christian Larson. That's how I met Todd. So welcome, Todd. Welcome to Cage Club. Thank you. I enjoyed watching this for multiple reasons. When I asked you what movie you wanted to do, almost right away you said Vampire's Kiss. This is going to be a running theme that this is sort of a very popular internet movie of Nicolas Cage, or popular movie of his on the internet, but why did you want to do this movie so bad? Essentially because it is considered like the Pete Cage movie, where everyone's like, oh, if you want to see Nick Cage, just be total gonzo and like over the top and broad and crazy, this is that movie. And so I had never seen it, and I wanted to experience just the the craziest, goofiest Nick Cage movie that existed. There is definitely that aspect of the movie, but at a certain point, I'd say about like two-thirds of the way through the movie, I felt the tone kind of shifted, or maybe it didn't shift, but I just kind of like started realizing that like there's a lot more going on in this movie, and that it has more elements to it. A lot of people say that like this movie is the room of something, something, something. But I was like, this movie is the room of vampire movies two-thirds of the way through the movie, I realized it was kind of that, but not really that. It has a different element to it. What did you think the movie was going to be before you started watching it? Yeah, when I when I, I thought a movie was just going to be like, like this broad, crazy vampire movie, like a literal vampire movie about Nick Cage being this weirdo vampire, and it's just Nick Cage being weird, crazy Nick Cage. But then you watch it, and you realize that that's not what it is at all. It's essentially he's going insane. It's a story about someone who goes insane from like a combination of New York City and loneliness and being rich. And But it's kind of like a, a precursor almost to American Psycho. I'm not the first person to say this. I kind of read up on it. But even as I was finishing up watching the movie before I read it, I was like, yeah, this kind of is similar to American Psycho. And it's like this kind of like rich yuppie guy that just kind of gets off on doing what he wants. Essentially, it just catches up with him and he just goes full-on insane because he's a rich guy in new york it never like in the end it catches up to him but he does so much shit in the movie that he never gets caught yeah and it's like it's it's essentially basically like american psycho in that way and it really kind of surprised me in that way that i didn't see that coming yeah i think the most important thing that you said there is that this is his descent into insanity Mm mm-hmm because of loneliness, because of all these different factors that you brought up. As such, there are moments in this movie that are just some of the craziest things that we're ever going to talk about in Cage Club. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth pointing out, this movie, along with Snake Eyes and maybe one or two other Cage movies, these are the movies that people on the internet are familiar with without knowing what they're from. Mm -hmm. People don't know what Vampire's Kiss is, but they know Nicolas Cage saying the alphabet. Mm-hmm. Or they've seen that meme of him with the bug eyes. They know more about this movie than they would think, but it it is so much more than that. It is so much more than just him being insane on screen. Mm-hmm. So the movie com- came out in 1988. Mm-hmm. It definitely has a very 80s, 90s feel. Oh, yeah. I uh, wrote down, like, when they went in that club, we are definitely in an 80s club. Like, everything about this is very 80s. Uh, he plays a, a character named Peter Lowe, and... Mike mentioned this to me last night when he was watching it. His accent is wonderful, and it's... What is it? What is that accent? 
he sort of sounds like at times Stewie Griffinish. He reminds um, me of Jonas Venture Jr. from the Venture Brothers, just like this putting on airs way more important than he actually is voice. Yeah. It's not a real voice either because his character drops it and then yeah, so back into it. Cage plays a high-powered literature executive. He's a foreign distributor at the publishing house that he works. And so he has this really important job, and like Todd was saying, it's sort of his job is sort of similar to Patrick Bateman's in American Psycho. They're both these high-powered, respected New York executives. But his job um, is like zero stress, which right. is what was so conflicting. Like, I think he's going crazy out of boredom as opposed to stress. You know, like American Psycho felt a little more stress-driven. But this one is just like he's got nothing to do. So he just like creates a fantasy. The whole movie's like central conflict is over nothing. It's Alva trying to find... It's the secretary trying to find this contract. The, the guy he's trying to find the contract for knows that it's going to be hard to find and doesn't care, and he manufactures the conflict. Like, he has so little stress in his life that he creates it just that he has something to do. And just to go um, back really quickly to the, the accent, I would... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a nod to his father, who chose at some point in his life to speak with distinction. He said it used to be this very continental sound he said that it felt it was appropriate for a literary agent. Interesting. Yeah. Because the only thing that I read about it... My, well, Mike, did you listen to the commentary? Because I didn't have a chance to. I did, yes. And so apparently we'll he's, to- he's like using a bunch of... Uh, he, he's using inspiration from a bunch of family members for this role. So like he sort of hmm. points it out as he goes along. He doesn't say which family member, but he's like, oh, I took this move from so-and-so and that move from... And his brother makes an appearance in this movie real quick. His brother's apparently in two movies. His brother Mark Coppola is in two movies from 88, and they're both vampire movies. <laughs> so that's sort of weird. And I think one of his brothers directed Deadfall, but we'll get to that when we get to that. The only other thing I want to bring up about his accent is that from what I read, he uses the accent in this movie to make himself seem important, to fit the job description that he has. And whenever he's trying to be respected or seem important, he uses the accent more. And then whenever he isn't in one of those situations, the accent sort of goes away. And whether that's a conscious decision or not, it sort of influences the way you watch the movie, that it it sort of makes sense then when the accent is there, when the accent's not there, because it really does fluctuate like crazy throughout this movie. Yeah, I think it's a couple clues to things are, some things are real, but, you know, you can't always trust what you see in this movie, you know, so like his accent, you know, you can't even believe everything you hear and see and so forth. So I think it might even play into that a little bit for me. So he plays this guy Peter Lowe, and right off the bat, there's another Cage in action. He's a real ladies' man. Dude, he's like in, a womanizer in this. It's like his and he, problem. He has a definite type, and it <laughs> is... Like, every woman, it seems like, for the first half of the movie that he goes after, and there's about three or four of them, they all look exactly the same. They're all, you know, a light-skinned African-American woman with dyed, sort of, blondish hair. Mm-hmm. Like, frizzy um, hair. I would call it. It's like, like such 80s stylized yeah. frizzy hair. <laughs> I actually found out that Jennifer Beals was actually not supposed to be cast as Rachel. Was supposed to be someone else, like an up-and-coming actress who canceled at the last minute, and then Jennifer Beals filled in for that role. Because Nick Cage was saying how he appreciated that the actor, that the uh, director and the production company kept uh, you know, a continuity between the first girl that he was seeing and then the Rachel character but he said it was total coincidence yeah it's pretty interesting that his real girlfriend and his sort of fantasy girlfriend look alike (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and R- Jennifer Beals, Rachel, is like the, the, the most important character that he interacts with in the movie. She is this quote-unquote vampire who goes on a date with Cage or meets him at a club and goes back to his apartment and bites him and turns him into a vampire. But by the end of the movie, and we'll get there, it, it's pretty clear like none of this really ever happened, that they, they met and maybe went out once. Mm-hmm. But that's all that ever happened. So everything that we see on screen, it's really the most unreliable narrator yeah. we may ever have in Cage Club. Like Nothing that we see or hear or experience really can be believed on any level. I also really liked the Rachel vampire look. You know, I thought she was a pretty interesting vampire. What kind of like struck me about the whole reveal is that like he just he picks this girl up at the bar and then it's like uh, he's like nice earrings and then it's just like a smash cut and they're making out on the bed, okay? <laughs> and then she moves. <laughs> and then she just like she's like, hey, guess what? And she like brandishes her fangs and digs into his neck and I was just like, whoa, like that's very jarring. There's no lead up. She doesn't play coy whatsoever. And I don't know. I just thought it was a very interesting reveal of her character. <laughs> you don't really see it like that in the movies very often. But it's not the first vampire-ish introduction that we get in the movie because on this previous date, really on the first girl that he brings back to his apartment, they're getting hot and heavy. He's about to compromise her and I'm going to use compromise Every time we talk about sex from here on out, because I love that from The Boy in Blue. And he's, a, he's about to compromise her, and a bat flies in from outside. They can't get it out, and they, they run out of his apartment, and they go to her place. So really, from the beginning, there's this theme of vampires and bats and horror just woven into the fabric of the story. It seems like, even before he met the vampire, he had this obsession with that sort of mythology and that sort of lore. All right, I had this weird hypothesis about the movie from that first bat. So I I thought that the first bat turned into the Rachel character, and yeah. that bit him, and then he started having, like, all these crazy hallucinations and, like, becoming insane from the bat. And then I was like, no, that's stupid, because then it's revealed that she's, like, just some girl. The last third of the movie, he runs into her at a club, and, like, she's obviously a normal human person or maybe he hallucinated that bat was hers i don't know but that was like my kind of like hypothesis or like weird mythology idea that i had about that character and i was like nah never mind that's dumb i definitely thought the bat was rachel right like she was sort of like scoping out her prey and that was yeah going on because you know for the most part i was going along with it thinking like she's real this is happening you know it was kind of more fun for me at first to just accept that this is all actually happening but it wasn't until later where i put together things just become quite apparent at a certain point that he's just out of his effing mind um (laughs) then i was like maybe the bat attack was definitely real because his date witnessed it and like runs out of the apartment and stuff so maybe that like set something off in his head and gave him this sort of line of imagination to follow right he was like a bat broke into my apartment and then it just like one thing leads to another he's like vampires all right i'm gonna get obsessed with vampires now and like and that's how it tied together so it's a little bit of a theory here and this might be like a real stretch but like bear with me for a second maybe in this character's life in peter lowe's life he goes out every night gets a different same-looking girl, brings her back to his apartment, compromises her, goes to work, lather, rinse, repeat. Right. And his life, I mean, ostensibly from the outside, his life looks great. He's always with all these beautiful women. He has a really nice job. He's got a great apartment. But to him, 
It's all monotonous. He does nothing at work. He does the same thing every night. It's just boring. Like, he's just bored with his life. The start of the movie, the first girl he brings back, the bat comes in, and then he goes to his psychiatrist's office. It's a running thing throughout that he's talking to his shrink. So maybe in this weird theory of mine, this bat entering his life, intruding on his date, is so out of the ordinary, that's exactly what he's been looking for. He's looking to break up the monotony in any way. And that's when he tells his shrink that seeing the bat and trying to deal with the bat made him aroused. I brought this girl up to my place the other night. Really hot, you know. And we're on the bed. And suddenly this bat comes swooping down out of nowhere. A bat? Holy shit. But this this really happened. But the part, this part, I don't know if this really happened or I dreamt it later or what. I mean, I'm finding this bat off all alone. And I'll be damned if I didn't get really turned on. You were aroused? Yeah. But you said just a few seconds before you were in the throes of passion. Yeah, I know. So then you were aroused. With the girl? Yes, with the girl. Oh, sure, yes, absolutely. But then she left the room and I was... I mean... I came down. You know, I was in Mortal Kombat with a fucking bat. Give me a break. I'm not sure if that theory makes any sense, but it sort of... It could, I guess. (laughs) Well, I have a whole theory about why he creates the type of vampire and, you know, why he imagines that type of vampire to begin with. Like, you said, like, he goes to the shrink and when the movie starts, he's talking about, like, oh, I woke up, I just wanted her out of my apartment. And, like, you know, he obviously is just, like, he loves him and leaves him. He's just, like, one woman to the next. You know, he doesn't believe in girlfriends so when he imagines this vampire she's like this dominatrix style she's the guy in the relationship and treats yep. him like almost like rapes him and spits on him and treats him like garbage and all like he put himself in the role of victim you know the way he usually mm-hmm. treats these women you know so it's like this sort of internal psychosis like yeah. projecting itself back at him and he's like tortured in this sort of cycle yeah and that was actually mentioned in the um in the notes that I saw on the commentary is that like she is dominant like she's only seen on top and it seems like Cage had a problem with that at first or something but essentially that was like part of the plot was that like you know she's the one person the one woman that like controls him I just like that too because it showed that his character had consequences for the way that he treated people you know even the way he treats the secretary at work and like he just takes everything he can out on this poor woman every day or alpha yeah and he's just taking it out on her but then at night he's having these fantasies that some girl's taking it out on him so it's very strange but whatever his mental state is really from the beginning of the movie and i have here in my notes the first time that we see him do something like really crazy the first time that we get a sense that things aren't necessarily what they seem is less than 20 minutes into the movie He's just serving coffee to someone in bed, mm-hmm. and his bed is empty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really, for the last hour and 20 minutes of this movie, nothing might be real. Like, everything yeah. is just sort of weird and unfolding in front of him. He's, like, losing a sense of self. He's, he leaves a date. That's the like, they're best. They're at an art museum. I love <laughs> that. What do you think? I gotta take a piss. And then he just ditches her. He just like, leaves. And he, like, waits for her to call and listens to her message. Like, that was classic. He has that great line, too, where he's like, tells her to F off. He's like, fuck you too, sister. (laughs) When I think of a guy losing his mind, like, it makes sense now because, like, he's just doing so many random 
things, like, it's convincing me. He's going nuts. He leaves his date to go home and just wait for her to call and get mad at him, it seems like. And then she calls and she he tells her off, but doesn't pick up the phone, just says it to the answering machine. It's Everything is falling off the rails from the very start of the movie. So much of what he does, or so much of the time that we spend in the movie, is him at work, like we were saying earlier, doing nothing, and just screaming at his poor secretary, looking for a contract that she that takes her an hour of the movie, and what must be days or weeks, probably weeks, yeah, I was, in terms of the movie's timeline, to find this one piece of paper. Yeah, there was a lot of time spent also on like her life outside of work, at her home. You know, I mean, that's part of the movie, but I was like, there's a lot of non-vampire stuff going on for this vampire movie, and that was kind of when I was like, there's more to this than just some like goofy, dumb vampire movie. So her subplot, not subplot, it's part of the main plot in the movie, was like really... More than I had expected, I guess, for the movie, especially considering like how much misogyny was in the movie. It felt like it was part of another gritty New York crime film that should have come out yeah. around this time too, right? Like, yeah, it's like just like look how stark and realistic this poor woman's life is, and she's being berated at work by a complete maniac, and it just drives the point home of like you know Nick Cage is beyond acting normal. Like this is what normal people act like. She carries a gun because she's, like, afraid to go on the subway, you know? She's she's just crazy, like, the reality that this poor woman has to endure in this movie. And even though she is portrayed as, like, the crazy one, even though it's very clear that Nicolas Cage is the crazy one, that after Nicolas Cage chases her into the bathroom, into the woman's room, he goes back and, like, to his high-powered table of executives... They're laughing about how she reacted, and they're, they're making fun of her for, like, demanding a raise that she, she's really going through like the worst workplace stress anyone can endure and they're just laughing at her for wanting to be compensated yeah this movie feels like an indictment of misogyny you know <laughs> like it is totally against like the power hungry man executive at the t- time that was sort of reigned supreme in the 80s i have a feeling like this is a response to sort of those types of people i also feel that it may be a response but i also feel that there's I mean, it was made in the 80s, so it's also part of that culture. I counted, like, they dropped the C-bomb, like, at least, like, five times I counted in this movie. Right. They, they do do that a lot, but you can also do that, like Mike is saying. Yeah, the is not endorsement. Uh, all the yeah, no. Because, I mean, there's, there's no way that he's a sympathetic character mm. in any yeah. regard. And Alva, all she's doing is trying to do her job, trying to live a normal life. She's so <laughs> distraught at work that she, like, fakes sick just so she doesn't have to go to work. And what does she get for that? Her boss shows up at her front door and spies on her, mm-hmm. you know, in her underwear doing laundry. She's 100% the sympathetic character, and he is just this monster. Everything that they're saying, everything that they're doing goes to prove this is not okay. Like, the, the way that we're portraying men in movies, this is not okay. So is that, sorry, is your theory then that that's the monster movie that this movie is about that he is like a rapist misogynist monster he's yeah he's the monster like that he is that the... would be a very forward-thinking type of film they were trying to make i, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I would love to believe that <laughs> well what do you think what kind of movie do you think that they well, do i think they were they were just making a movie about a guy who lost his mind right and something about the vampire was something the writer was able to sort of grab onto and get his point across whatever that point may be i'm not sure because yeah like the vampire has always had like that kind of place in the pop culture canon 
of like the power, you know, the masculine power, and like, and uh, the, yeah, the there's sexual, sexual predators, power, yeah. and it's a predatory, you know, nature preys on women and 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 such like that, and so it's it kind of relating that to a modern day tale mm-hmm. of you know a high power executive who just feels that he can take what he wants and that women belong to him relating those two ideas i mean i think like if you compare it to american psycho it was more straightforward and that just like he's going insane and he's an asshole and like the monster is that like he's just a misogynist man and you don't need to create any kind of mythical creature for him to be a monster he just is a monster i think that because they blend it with the vampire and the vampirism and all the culture and everything associated with that they're allowed to let him go even crazier like, if a normal person was acting this insane toward his employees, it wouldn't make sense. Like, it would be so over the top. But because he's sort of losing control of his mind and losing control of his world, he's able to flip out on her and complain to his psychiatrist about how simple it is to alphabetize things and how, how only, like, the, the biggest idiot in the world would ever be able to misfile something because everybody knows the alphabet. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Huh? That's all you have to do. Very good. You know your alphabet. I never misfiled anything! Not once! Not one time! It's around this point in the movie when he has this freakout at his psychiatrist's office that visually you start to see a shift. I mean, he's sort of becoming unhinged in his mannerisms, but it's also at this part where, like, the set dressing changes. He shades his apartment. He's constantly... He's wearing sunglasses now <laughs> indoors. He's standing in the shade trying to block out the sun... Oh, the couch that was turned into the impromptu coffin, I thought was yeah, a very his, nice touch. Such a his great apartment, touch. <laughs> his apartment becomes like a vampire's den. It's like a nest, yeah. It's disgustingly filthy, and he just flips his couch over to form an impromptu coffin where he, where he sleeps. And his building, too, sort of is that white marble, reminded me of like a mausoleum or something yeah. along those lines, which also I caught on to that before the whole like vampire encounter, and I was like, maybe it's like they're trying to drop hints that he's already sort of a vampire of some type, or he's like, you know, they're dropping, they're dropping seeds here for later. Yeah, and I saw like when I was watching it, I saw like when he, I think it went, when he was taking Rachel upstairs to his apartment, I don't know, he was taking someone upstairs to his apartment, and they were showing like a long shadow down a staircase. And as I was watching this, I was like, "Are they trying to make like subtle hints to like Nosferatu? Because like that's a really cool like cinemagraphic kind of dropping a hint to the or a reference to that." Mm-hmm. But then like later on in the movie, they're sitting on the bed watching Nosferatu. So I was like, <laughs> that- "Never mind. It was not so subtle. They're they're straight going for Nosferatu." And then obviously like his gait, his appearance, his eyes, like he's trying to mimic kind of that character throughout the rest of the movie so it could have been a subtle hint except for that they totally just gave it to you it reminds me of valley girl like subtly hinting toward romeo and juliet until all of a sudden they show you the marquee that just says romeo and juliet (laughs) they walk out of a screening of romeo and juliet in the movie i really love that little moment the post-vampire coitus where like he's he's sort of petrified because he thinks he just had sex with the vampire again 
and Nosferatu's on TV. But I really love in movies where the modern version of the creature watches like a video of the old version of the you know of like the legend. So you have like you have like Rachel, who's like the 1989 version of the vampire, and she's watching you know the first version ever committed to film. And it's just really funny to see like how far we've come <laughs> since then. It's at this point in the movie where Cage eats a cockroach. I'm not sure if there's a real reason why, other than he's just mentally unhinged. Yeah, well, they had to do it twice. Well, originally... I heard, I heard three times. Well, I, I was reading the, the notes on the commentary, and they said they, they did it twice because he wasn't okay with the first take, but then they actually went with the first take. And originally in the script, he was supposed to eat raw eggs... But Cage suggested eating the cockroach because he said it would be more visceral for the audience. It's just, it's so gross. Like, yeah. it, it, There's like a it lot very of real easily... stuff in this movie. It was really yeah. unexpected, and you could tell it was really real. Mm-hmm. He said every muscle in his body didn't want to do it, but he still plowed through it anyway. That is I mean, they, could, they could very really have done it with you know, a quick cut and something, or anything. There's so many ways to get that shot and make it look good. That they didn't have to go ahead and have him eat the cockroach, but he wanted to. Yeah. And I think that really comes down to why we're doing Cage Club is because his <laughs> singular commitment to these characters and to these roles, very few other actors are as committed to anything as Cage is to the, the, the roles that he takes. Uh, something kind of connected like this moment to me with like the original Dracula story. I don't know how familiar you guys are with like you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but he's sort of, and, and like throughout Dracula's history, he kind of has like this manservant who's sort of like insane and eats bugs, and most of the time he's locked up in an asylum waiting for Dracula to show up and like move into the abbey and stuff like that. And his name is like usually Renfried or Renfield. And this character reminds me very much of that character from the Dracula novels and stuff. So, because he's like this ghoulish, bug-eating, like, wannabe vampire, you know? He hasn't even transformed all the way, but he feels like a connection to some type of master or something like that. I don't know, it was just an interesting little bit that came to mind when he ate that bug. I was like, why is that in this movie? Maybe it's a callback to that, or maybe it's just to show you exactly how insane he's supposed to be at this moment. I mean, if you want to get literary, we could also talk about how it relates to Kafka and the metamorphosis and the cockroach there. Oh, dude, when he, um, like, skitters underneath his sofa at the end like a cockroach, I totally was, like, metamorphosis. He's so committed, and it's just, it's a delight to watch. The next big moment in the movie is that he shows up to work and finds out that Alva has called out sick, even though she hasn't found the contract yet. And he takes a $20 cab ride all the way up to her apartment uh, which I guess now would probably be like a $60 camera. Like, he yeah. goes a while. Yeah. He crosses uh, a bridge. Yeah. He shows up at her house, essentially walks in on her, even though he's from outside. She's in her bra, just ironing clothes, and she rightfully freaks out. And he offers her a truce. I'm here to call a truce, man. Like, yes, man. It's so weird. He's like, come on, man, truce. And he he affects that accent again and convinces her that bygones are bygones. He doesn't really care about the contract. You know, Heatherton, go to another firm for all he cares. He just wants Alva back because he knows how bad it is 
when employers and employees are like have strife in the workplace. And he convinces her to come back with him to the office. I just love what a psycho he is. Like, I totally bought it, right? I was like, oh, finally, he's like going to be nice to this woman and like admits like he was wrong. And then you get the cab ride. I mean, because she, she's done nothing to warrant the abuse that she's being given. All she's done is what he's asked. She just is is faced with this Herculean or Sisyphean task of trying to find a needle in a haystack, this one piece of paper in what seems like all the paper in New York City, and they have this cab ride back, and once she's sort of under his control, original Vampire Cage returns to the surface. It's horrible when there are tensions between employer and employee, Alva. Sometimes the pressures, you know, they just build up. Wait till you get into a position of authority. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if I if I ever do. You will, Alva. You're a very bright girl. That's how I know that today, by God, is the day you're going to find that damned Heatherton contract. I I thought you said that you didn't care if uh, Mr. Heatherton left the agency. I mean, I thought you said that uh, that everything took time. Ah, but Alva, that doesn't mean we're going to stop trying to do the best damn job we can. The work's not just going to go away, Alva. It never just goes away. The goddamn contract is somewhere in those goddamn fucking files! Are you right, Mr. Lowe? Shut up. And they make, like, a pit stop on the way back. I I love this little beat, too. It just makes Alva's life, like, that much grittier and real. Like, she goes to her brother's body shop to get bullets for her gun. And Romero's, by the way. Yeah, I love that. I wasn't sure if that was a nod to George Romero. But I love the uh, idea that she's like, okay, I'll come back to work, but, like, not without my loaded gun. (laughs) You know, she's definitely like, I'm going to shoot this guy. Like, I just know it's going to happen. I cannot imagine, like, how scared she she must be. Like, imagine her story being told throughout this whole movie as if she's being stalked by a vampire. (laughs) Like, I'm really buying her in this. And uh, I don't really know this actress very well. I only knew her really from The Running Man. So... She plays a completely oh, different person. Know. She plays like a really tough chick in that movie. And here she's almost like um, like this buttoned up schoolgirl type, you know, very innocent. So, uh, yeah, I was really buying her performance. And like I said earlier, just like her and Cage, the contrast between them just, you know, sells his craziness even more for me. And we see his craziness on full display in the next shot when he's in the bathroom and we see him in the mirror. And he's like, where did I go? Where, where, where's my reflection? Why am I not here? <laughs> And we see him in two mirrors, and he just punches both mirrors and breaks them. Like, he's just, like, it, it, the film's basically saying, hey, look, things aren't what they seem. Mm-hmm. You, you know he's crazy now, right? It's sort of the height of his madness, and it just all sort of descends into chaos from here. That was the moment for me where I was like, okay, stop fooling yourself. This is not a real vampire movie. This is about a guy who's who's nuts. Because I think that shot, and there's a hint with the coffee shot when he's serving no one coffee in bed. I think that's a clue as well to say there's really not a vampire. But this is unmistakable because, like, I mean, he sells it. I believe he doesn't see himself, even though we see him. And then wasn't there, like, a guy in the stall? Yeah, he says, he says take 
take your acting or whatever oh, you're yeah. doing to the to the women's room. Like, like just a, a just a butt in the scene with another misogynistic tip, you know, <laughs> like right at tip of the hat, right at the end. Clearly, he's in the mirror, but he doesn't see himself. I mean, one. Yeah, more. and at first I was like, is this movie that? poorly made that they <laughs> yes. afford the effect and I was like no I guess it's part of the whole story is that like in his mind he can't see himself so that's like the psychosis setting in it was really well framed too because you can't see his reflection in one mirror but mm-hmm. you can see like multiple reflections the side, like, in the yeah. side mirror right so it's like yeah. really well framed so uh, at first it was like I don't see the reflection in that mirror maybe it's gonna be like an effect shot and then I was like oh no kind of like where the movie splits your opinion of what's, mm-hmm. ha- what's going on like you said if you didn't pay attention to the to the cues earlier like with the coffee thing this is where it's like oh now this is where it starts to like fully unravel so they're they're back at the office and he brings alva it seems like they're he, she, he's bringing her to the file room to the back room but they go down where where do they wind up like in a basement oh, well first he's like you gotta work overtime so like she stayed till one the night before and she's i think she's just in the file office with all the because she's just like suddenly you finally see her desk and it's just covered with like comical amounts of paperwork she has like the file and then she runs into cage's office and they're the only two left there and he's having like an imaginary encounter with his vampire so he like opens the door and he does that whole like oh it's too late alva it's just too late he does the uh cuckoo clock head move Mm -hmm. too late too late too late (laughs) and uh he chases her to the basement of the office they like remember they like running down the stairwell and he's like cackling after her and she's screaming her head off so i think they wind up like in the sub-basement of this office and she pulls out the gun with the bullets that her brother gave her but they're only blanks he only gives it to her to intimidate him and she's like shooting at the ground while he's just screaming at her basically unloading upon her it's sort of not clear what happens next she thinks that she was raped but i don't know if we ever necessarily get a firm answer on that i feel like the filmmaker left it kind of ambiguous because they didn't really want to show it but i think it's it's pretty clear that that's what happened we already know that he's a monster we don't need to see him do that exactly yeah it's like it's like the the you know the argument that people have about game of thrones all the time lately with like all the rape you know scenes that they're showing it's like it's like oh why do you have to show it why do you have to show it i mean like there's it goes two ways with that but like you can take two different routes, as this movie did, shows that you, you can not show it and you still have an understanding of what happened. The more important thing in this scene is that he takes her loaded gun, puts it in his mouth, and sees it as an escape from his life. That he, he doesn't want to live this life anymore. doesn't realize that they're just blanks, and he pulls the trigger twice in his mouth. And because he doesn't die, he's convinced now that he's a vampire, that he's yeah. immortal, that he cannot be killed. <laughs> I love it. And he goes running down the street saying, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire! 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 Those two shots on screen, real stunt, that's another of like the real stunts in this movie that just kind of like blew my mind. Eating the cockroach, putting, even though it's like, uh, you know, just... Oh no, like, blank, blank still fire stuff. Like, yeah. they're still like... Yeah, and it, the, the director even told him, he was like, you know that these are still dangerous. Even the, yeah, even the blanks still fire. Nick Cage getting into character took two blank shots in his mouth. That is just yeah. unbelievable dedication I mean, to the character. Exactly, and, dude. Oh. The dude is just so committed, which I am so impressed with. Like, this whole movie 
every scene he goes through every range of emotions you know like he goes from calm to rage filled and then back to calm like i'm just i'm just marveling at his range in this movie to be honest with you like i'm not even paying attention to whether it's supposed to be funny or not or whatever i'm just like really impressed with like his energy what vampire is complete without the vampire teeth and he goes out to buy the vampire huh. teeth because he's very clearly not a vampire. Yeah, and that was um, that was another one of the scenes in the movie that convinced me that he is not an actual vampire. It's like he has to go buy fake vampire teeth to convince himself and everyone else that he's a vampire. The jig is up. This is not a vampire movie. <laughs> but he can't afford the $20 realistic-looking vampire teeth, so he has to buy the cheap the vampire teeth that everybody has worn at one point in their life, the $3 plastic vampire teeth, and that's just the vampire that he is. And he, like, runs to a park bench and opens that, like, a bag of crack and, like, shoves those teeth into his mouth and takes, like, this, he, like, exhales, like he's in ecstasy, and then he, like, yeah. crawls away on the ground. Like a, like a, like a vampire dog. dog. When he gets his, his fangs... He must have decided consciously that, like, he's going to be, like, full-on predator, and he has to chase down the pigeon. Mm. I only mention it because it, it reminded me of Birdie when he captured pigeons in Birdie, the movie, as well. There are a lot of birds in all of these movies. Like, <laughs> Cajun birds go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's in his writer contract. He must have a certain number of birds. So apparently, like, even though they don't show anything with this bird, you know, that he goes back to his apartment, and it's just, like, the feathers everywhere, and he's, like, burping. Apparently, like, the animal rights people had, like, a problem with this but not with like the cockroach which i don't know sounds seems a little strange seeing as how we don't even see the bird get eaten and then this is what i was talking about where it's like he sets his timer and this is the first time he sleeps all during the day for the first time you know what i mean like he misses the day and he wakes up again at night to embrace his full vampirism he uh transitions from pigeons to women and goes into this club the tracking shot of him walking through this crowd is beautiful like him in the center of the frame crazy eyes vampire plastic teeth in his mouth nobody's really paying him second any 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 mind yeah and i think like that's a part of you know everyone's just like oh new york city is like a character in this movie new york city is like the the one place this movie could really happen everyone's known of times where you're like no one is paying attention to you at all like you can do whatever you want because everyone is just minding their own business and that's what this scene shows, is that, like, in that society, he gets away with it. He gets away with anything because no one cares in New York City. And he's walking through this club and then goes to, like, a back room somewhere that's just gigantic. And there's only one girl in there, and she's just doing coke by herself. I guess because he's a attractive young man approaching her, even though he, like Mike Todd was saying earlier, walks like Nosferatu... <laughs> and has the vampire teeth in his mouth, she lets him approach her. She's like, oh, this guy is kooky and interesting. And he sits down next to her on the couch, and she seems pretty open to, like, at least sort of making out with him, or, you know, getting close and friendly with him. And then, in another cage in action, goes to cop a feel, and she just slaps him. It's that that sets him off, and he attacks her, and rips his vampire teeth out, and just bites her neck until she dies. Yeah, that was unexpected, uh, like that she would die from it, you know, that he was committing so hard to the bite. Things definitely took a turn in this scene for me. Uh, I was like, whoa, that is drastic. Uh, yeah, there's no coming back from that. Yeah, he's crossed the line. <laughs> then uh, the vampire appears at the club to, like, berate him and say, like, I've got a new guy. 
dumped, he gets mm-hmm. dumped by the vampire. But then he walks down to the club and sees actual Rachel, non-vampire Rachel, and it's very clear that like she hasn't thought about him in a while, <laughs> that she recognizes <laughs> and him. And she's like, hey, how have you been? <laughs> and she's like, oh yeah, you! Oh yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm like you, remember, we're vampires. <laughs> and her boyfriend it just like thinks this is the, f- the funniest thing in the world. People will watch you have just a complete mental breakdown because you don't see that every day. And so everybody around him is just seeing him freak out at non-vampire Rachel. Check her teeth. Check her teeth. She's a vampire. And he's just getting dragged out of the club. And also the the scene where she she spits on him as he's being, like, drug away was not so much improvised, but uh, Nick Cage didn't know it was going to happen. Jennifer Beals and the director worked it out. Cage had no idea. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing for that scene. Look what happens when he gets tossed out of the club. He, like, grabs the guy and he's like, I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. He's like, you got a gun? Shoot me. Shoot me. And the other, and everyone starts, like, laughing at him. And the guy yeah. puts up, like, the cross. And he's like, he's like, no. And the look on his face is just like, why would you do this to me? And everyone's just, like, laughing at him. Being like, go back to Transylvania, pal. It totally is what you're saying, Joey, where it's just like, you know, people will sort of just gawk at the crazy man and before they you know realize just how dangerous he can be and as he's running out of the club people are like better get home soon because the sun's about to come up oh and then on his way home the dude, sun does come up that is beautiful <laughs> that happens. i lost it the spoiler alert does not kill him because yeah. he's not a vampire yeah. after he has his son freak out where he grabs a steak where does he grab a steak from it's from like a like, pallet just like laying against a trash can or something like just like a one of those like wooden shipping pallets it's really the clearest and truest and most full sense of just how insane he is. He has this complete, utter breakdown where he's just muttering to himself alone on the street, soaked with the blood of this dead girl from the club. We see him hallucinate entire conversations with his psychiatrist. He finds the, the girl of his dreams. He admits <laughs> to raping someone and murdering someone else. Oh, yeah. It's... <laughs> I wrote that down. Well, I did rape someone a couple nights ago, a girl at my office. The psychiatrist responds, oh, just a little id release, no need to worry. And then he says, well, I murdered someone last night. And she says, people murder people all the time in New York. You don't think the city's going to stop, do you? And he's like, no, I guess that's right. And then she says, I've got the girl for you. It's my next patient. And she calls the girl in. I mean, in this hallucination, Cage is a totally normal, still upstanding citizen. Um, at least, you know, as as upstanding as this deranged literature executive can be. He just falls in love with this girl, and they say that they finish each other's sentences, and they're like the perfect match. They're meant to be, but in, in reality, he's just on a street corner holding a wooden stake, just muttering to himself. And also, I was reading this, that they shot this movie with the long-distance camera lens without any closed set. So when he's walking around and, like, people are walking past him, those are real New Yorkers just oblivious to the fact that a movie is going on and they just think that this is a crazy guy in the streets of New York City. Well, one of the things about, especially this section of the movie, him, like, wandering the streets, talking to himself and just, like, screaming to himself and things like that, like, one thing that was kind of confirmed by the commentary is just uh, when the director was sort of saying, you know, New York City around this time started to get a reputation for all the, just the crazy people walking around. Like, there were just lots of crazy people. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, my parents saying, like, be careful in New York City because it's full of crazies and, you know, just home 
homeless people talking to themselves. So I, they really pull that off here. And I think it just like it really encapsulates like more than anything in the movie, just like the time and place that this movie was made. Like you're seeing in this <laughs> third act, almost like you could have just picked this guy off the street. This could have been anybody wandering the streets in New York City at this point. I, de- I definitely buy that. So after he has this little monologue, he eventually makes his way back to his vampire's nest, his little apartment. He has like a huge blowout imaginary oh, yeah, yeah. fight with his fake new girlfriend. <laughs> and it's 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 a great monologue to end a movie full of monologues. It's another one of those, like, if you're going up for an acting gig or something, like, this is like a monologue you want. It's like an audition monologue right here. You know that, do you, Captain? You just keep hopping and hopping over the same goddamn thing. Why'd you become a vampire? Why can't you be normal? Oh, Peter, does this mean we can never have children? Because there's no way in hell that I would ever, ever marry a loudmouth pig like you. Next, you're ten minutes I'm with you, and the shit just starts right up! What? What? You hate my guts? You want to get home? You want to leave? Good. Get the hell out of here, you fucking pig! Leave me the fuck alone! I really can't handle these relationships. Maybe I should see a shrink. This monologue sort of stacks up to his monologue in The Best of Times. And what was the other really great one that we heard? Oh, uh, in Birdie, when he's talking about boobs? That was one of my favorites. Mm. <laughs> in uh, Peggy Sue Got Married, I think the whole basement speech, when he's talking about, I got the teeth, I got the car, I got the hair, I'm the lead yeah. singer, I'm going to be the next Fabian. <laughs> I mean, everything, like, there's there's a memorable bit of dialogue from each of his movies, and he, like, they're all very different, delivered in different ways, totally different characters and situations, and he, like, they're all just, like, a thing to marvel at. You know what's kind of crazy about his, like, explosions or so his speeches in this is his body language. Uh, like, I think we mentioned it a couple of times. Like, he walks around like a vampire, but when he's mad and arguing, he's, like, totally slips out of that vampire mode and becomes this very expressive, like, almost like a dancer, right? I think he even mentioned he pulled a couple of Mick Jagger moves like out of his <laughs> out of his back pocket. But he like, you know, cocks his hips and puts his hands on them and like folds it. It's yeah. just very, very animated, you know, very un vampire like at those points. So it's after his fake argument with her or very real argument really with his <laughs> fake girlfriend ends that he makes his way back into his makeshift coffin and Alva's brother shows up to get vengeance on his sister after she tells him that she thinks that she was raped or sexually assaulted. Yeah, so that's why I think he actually did assault her because like during the assault she sort of transforms into Rachel the vampire and part of me was like ah that's like such a clever trick that vampires do you know they're illusionists you know she's just fucking with them. But then I was like no but that's not real so he's sort of replacing the traumatic moment with like a vampire moment so that maybe he doesn't even realize he raped her in the end or anything like that yeah and after that moment is over as he's sort of crawling away and picks up the gun we do see that it's alva lang there passed out like it's 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 her whatever he substituted rachel in for her alva was the victim in that circumstance 
Yeah, and the brother knows that this guy's like giving her lots of shit, and then like he's crossing the line. So like, even if she just said it, you know, if she just lied to her brother or embellished the truth to get him to deal with this guy, like I would, I would buy that. You know, like tell this, tell your brother that something to finally get him to stop fucking with you. He storms into Cage's apartment, flips open his makeshift coffin, which is just the couch that's flipped upside down, <laughs> and Cage recoils from the light. And grabs the wooden stake and just says, go ahead and do it. And Alva's brother pushes the stake down and kills Nicolas Cage. And this is his second on-screen death? This and Cotton Club, right? Yep. And they're both wonderful. They're, they're, they're both such great ways to go out. They're brutal and they're gory. <laughs> Blood is gushing. The final shot of the movie is that he dreams of or envisions Vampire Rachel, who says, dream of me one more time. Even in death, he can't escape this madness, this otherworldly presence that basically just ruined his life. Yeah. Well, what what about that last shot though? I'm a, I, they said something. They were the uh, the commentary has the director and Nicolas Cage, and they sort of disagree on the intention of that last shot. So I don't know. What, if, are, the, what are their theories? Well, the director felt that it was sort of a reminder that he'll never be free of this curse, but Nicolas Cage felt that he was finally free in death and that, you know, perhaps showing her one more time wasn't the best thing to do. I don't mind it. I kind of like it just because the movie is up to so much interpretation to begin with that I think it works both ways. It could just be him saying goodbye to her one last time or he could never be free of her. The director said that it gave the ending another edge. Well, I'll tell you this, like the end of a couple of Cage movies sort of end on a very strange note, you know, right, Joey? Like we've sort of discussed this before, like, um, (laughs) This is not uncommon for some of his films to just sort of feel like they're over and then come back with, like, one final sort of mind twist, you know, going, oh, I don't know about that, but okay. I also feel it's kind of like something that was very prevalent in, like, 80s and 90s films. Everything had to have, like, a a wrapping up moment at the end of the film. You had to, like, well, that was the story, guys. Kind of like almost like like the end title card on the movie. I don't know how else this movie could have ended... Because they they show Vampire Rachel, and then they cut to the New York skyline, and the credits roll. He dies, he's the main character, like, this has to be the end of the movie, but I don't know how they could have, like, transitioned away, like, maybe just sort of shown the exterior of his building, and they sort of zoom out. I don't have a problem with Rachel popping up one last time, but since our boy Nick Cage isn't really crazy about it, I'm going to say that I'm not crazy about it either. <laughs> yeah, I'll best to err on the side of Cage. Anything else to say about this movie? Because I think that's everything I wanted to talk about. Well, there's one Cage connection, sort of, that I came across. It was very hard for me to find one with this movie. I sort of strained a bit. But his uncle, Uncle Francis, as we call him, he'll go on to direct Bram Stoker's Dracula sometime in like five years from now from this movie. So there's sort of a vampire connection there. If you're looking for even more Coppola vampire connection, Connections. The trivia for Vampire's Kiss on IMDb lists that there's a there's a whole bunch of like vampire connections within the Coppola family, including that one you you just mentioned with Uncle Francis. Did anyone catch the, the David Hyde Pierce cameo? That was him. Oh, Fraser's dad was in Moonstruck. Yeah, and I was like, that can't be High Pierce. <laughs> Another thing. So Jennifer Beals. This was five years after Flashdance. I didn't know it was that far after Flashdance. She yeah, looks great. <laughs> I saw that she only did two other movies. One was like a Cinderella movie for like direct-to-video or something. And then she did 
this movie called The Bride, which is apparently a new wave Frankenstein movie, Hmm. co-starring Sting and Carrie Ells. What? Yeah, so I was like, I need to see this movie. (laughs) Did Sting play Frankenstein by any chance? Yeah, Sting Sting is Frankenstein. But I also thought she was in a lot more stuff. She looks super familiar. She's been in 76 things. I thought she was in more stuff like in the 80s. I didn't realize there was such a gap between like this and Flashdance. Anything else or is that pretty much, is that it? When the movie was done, I was asking myself, I was like, is this a bad movie that has good qualities? Or is it a good movie that got ruined by, like, certain aspects of it, like the accent? Like, if he had toned down the accent a bit, would this movie have been more believable in what it was going for? No, but I think the accent fits in with his character, because... I do, but it's just so... It just takes me so out of the story, because it's just so... It's just another thing on top of so many things, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I could could totally see it just being one thing too many. So next week on Cage Club, we have Never on Tuesday. We haven't watched this one yet. But he's, he's in one un- scene. He's uncredited as man in red sports car. So I feel like the next podcast episode is going to be the shortest one that we ever do. We have Never on Tuesday. We have Time to Kill, which is an Italian movie. And then we have a very special double feature, a David Lynch double feature of Wild at Heart and Industrial Symphony Number no. 1. So this was a really great week in Cage Club with Raising Arizona, Moonstruck, and Vampire's Kiss. Next week is going to be shaping up just to be just as good, so stay tuned on Cage Club. And I haven't seen any of those. Have you seen Vampire's Kiss? Oh, so, Ray, I've only, I saw parts of this movie on HBO late at night in the 90s when I was in high school, and I had no idea what the hell was going on. I don't remember, I didn't remember a minute of it. So this was basically like a, a first-time screening for me, and uh, it's, it's instantly one of my favorite movies. I just have to say, like, I had a ball watching this thing, and I just think it's, uh, it was awesome. So it was just, it, it entertained me, you know, and that's all it was trying to do, and I really love all the ambiguity and everything it's going for. I'm a horror fan, so I liked all that stuff. <laughs> I'm a huge Cage fan, so I loved his performance. And yeah, I mean, I would recommend this one, uh, definitely. Yeah, this was one of the four movies that the Alamo Drafthouse screened for Caged, which they started uh, in 2014. They show four movies or five movies on his birthday or the, the weekend around his birthday each January. Uh, and so the first Caged was this, along with Red Rock West, which we're getting to pretty shortly, and Con Air and Face Off, which we're going to get to a little bit later. I saw this in the theater surrounded by people who love Nicolas Cage, and it was just a delight. For, for more on the podcast, for more on Cage Club and all things Nicolas Cage, check out cageclub.me. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes from there. You can follow us on Twitter. You can read our reviews. All that sort of fun stuff. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Todd Van Mulligan. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club. <laughs>